Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmath. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, Sabteca. The sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Sham also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Sham, Elam, Ashur, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazar Mavith, Gerar, Hadaram, Uzzel, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Sham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take what is... Um, an interesting passage for us, another genealogy. Would you take this as your word to us and make it effective? Instruct our hearts. Help us to see the grandeur of your plan in and through this. Help us not to tune out. Help us not to get bored with names that we can barely pronounce, if at all. Wonder where in history these things ended up. But may we see Jesus lifted high and exalted today. 
from your preached word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I have no idea how many of those names I butchered. And I have no, no idea how many different ways I'm going to pronounce those names throughout this sermon. Don't come up to me afterwards and tell me that I, I changed the pronunciation. Uh, it's not intentional. Uh, you know, I'm just doing my best to get through all of this. Uh, these, the challenge is that these aren't really all Hebrew names. So you can't even rely on one type of pronunciation for them because... Um, well, Hebrew may have existed. It may have been the original language. We don't know. Uh, but at the time, you know, th- th- this was before all of the, at least what's being accounted, the naming happened before all of the changing of the language. And that's important to keep in mind that we're looking at a genealogy that's pointing forward. So it's telling us about some things that have yet to happen and that, ha- that will happen even though they haven't happened already, because we're also going to run into the story of Babel, and we know what happens there, right? Everyone had the same language at that point. So at this, you know, we're back up a little bit. Everybody's got the same language, Tower of Babel incident. Languages are confused, and and then they're scattered as a result. So the scattering that we're reading about and the different languages that are being described here are going to take place in uh, the next passage in chapter 11, Tower of Babel. And then the genealogy is going to pick back up. And it's going to focus in on Shem. So this is really kind of an interlude that's happening uh, in between this, this first genealogy that, if you notice, spends a lot more time talking about Ham than it does the other two brothers. And, and the reason is because is we're going to spend more time on Shem later. Why Shem? Well, that's where the promise comes, as we're going to see today. Let me remind us all of some of the things we've already talked about because we've been through a genealogy or two already, why we aren't skipping over these why we're looking at these. Um, There are some important reasons to consider of of, of why we study a genealogy. First, genealogies are important in the book of Genesis, as they are in all of Scripture, but especially because Genesis is laying a foundation. Genesis is the book of beginnings. So Moses, as the author, is laying the foundation of beginnings, and he is putting together this path uh, that is the, the, the grander story of Scripture. The grander story of Scripture is redemption. God saving a people for Himself. If someone were to come to you when you're dead asleep and shake you and say, what's the story of Scripture? Or what's the purpose of Scripture? Jesus saves. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell, right? And God, that, that's what He's doing through all of Scripture. Is it a book full of commands, warnings? exhortations, wisdom, are there stories, good stories, bad all of that's in there. But the purpose, its intention, and why it's given to us, including this genealogy, is to show us God's plan of redemption. That's the whole story of Scripture. We saw it beginning in Genesis 3, 15, in that promise, and we see it moving forward, the story of redemption. And that really is kind of part of the second point, that genealogies in the Old Testament are all pointing to someone. They're all pointing to Jesus. And genealogies in the New Testament do kind of the reverse. They They go forward, but they're pointing backward to show that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the genealogy, the promise. They're showing that there was no mistake, there was no creative putting things together, this wasn't uh, an invention of man, this was God's plan all along 
to redeem a people for himself. And from the very beginning, when he said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, he was talking about a person whom he would send through genealogy, and that is the person of Jesus. The seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. A third aspect that's important is that a genealogy teaches us about ourselves. We have a common history. We have a common ancestry, a common heritage. Everyone can trace their line back to this point in history. We can all go back further. Of course, we all came from Adam and Eve. But because God had erased the human race, uh, except for Noah and his family, this was the starting point. And so we can all come back to this point in history, and, and we'll see some of this in the uh, genealogy as it's expressed. We're one people, the human race, created in the image of God, male and female, with our worth and dignity given to us by our Creator in that we are made in His image. There is nothing wrong with celebrating our ethnicity, our nationality, or our gender. As Christians, though, this is not where we find our ultimate identity. We, uh, as Christians... If you think about it, the world has only these things, really, to find in their identity. But we know whose we are, that we belong to someone, that we've been bought with a price, and our identity has more significance in that we are a child of the king. That's our ultimate identity. If you've ever been around an insecure person, you know, what do insecure people do? They, they talk about themselves. They try, you wonder if they're trying to convince you or convince themselves of all that they have or all that they've accomplished, and they go on and on and on, and it's usually awkward and uncomfortable, and maybe we have been that person at one point in our lives as well. That's all that the world can do. And this is what the world does, unfortunately, in in a direction that's, that's damaging with gender, with ethnicity, with nationality. It can be comical and even trivial in some ways. I mean, think about it. Someone from a certain country, you know, if you were from Peru and you said our football team is the greatest football team in the world, I mean, we have these kinds of things where we take national pride or we take ethnic pride and maybe our food. People, you know, our bread is the best because we invented bread. You know, people, you hear these claims if you travel much. Or you may remember this comical line from a line of a movie, the husband may be the head of the home, but the woman is the neck that turns the head, okay? So I already see people making, you know what movie. Okay, so we, we, we do this kind of comically and we laugh and, and so forth, but we've seen throughout history that it can also be done sinfully, and unfortunately this happens more often. We've seen national oppression. We've seen tyrannical rule. We've seen these things end up in slavery. We know of stories of spousal abuse. We know of stories of genocide. Throughout history, we've seen people, in a sense, trying too hard to feel superior, to take whatever power and resources that they have to then use and abuse others for their own glory and their own gain. And there's no room for this in biblical Christianity. There's no room for this. There is no superiority for us. We know that we are all one people, united in our origin, endowed by our Creator with worth being made in His image. We don't act superior because we aren't superior. And as Christians, we ought to be first and foremost leading in this. There are other benefits to studying genealogies beyond knowing ourselves, beyond knowing God's story of redemption. 
But keep these things in mind as we work our way through this one. This particular genealogy is unique, however, and you may have noticed this as we read through it today. This one is called the Table of Nations, and you may have seen that in some of your Bibles. That may be the heading that's there. The Table of Nations is unique in a number of ways. First, there's really no ancient counterpart. There is no contemporary in the sense of another type of genealogy like this that's this ancient. In fact, for that reason, many liberal scholars denied it for a long time because it seemed unbelievable because there were no other counterparts. But in more recent history and through historical research, through archaeology, and especially through linguistic studies, this table of nations has gradually become more and more accepted among scholars because these studies have affirmed that it's true that these peoples and places that are listed here uh, have been found or found out about, and through these discoveries, more now is known than is not. There are still people and places and so forth that we don't know in this list. Scholars refer to a a genealogical cul-de-sac where something just kind of ends, and we don't know, there's just no history of that person or place. Another thing that makes it unique, and and this I've I've already inferred to, is that it is a list not only of people, but it's a list of nations and places. Most genealogies deal with individuals. They deal with individual people. But this list is a mix of individuals and groups and even geographical locations, many of which were named after a person. Um, And then what's further interest about this table of nations is that if we add it all up, Go ahead, I'll give you a minute. You guys can add it all up. Uh, I'm kidding. There's 70 in this list. There's 70 here. What is significant in Hebrew culture about 70? We've already talked about this some. It's, it's a picture of completeness, right? Both the numbers 7 and 10 are both considered complete, but when they're multiplied together, it's that idea of totality, complete completeness. And what Moses is doing by using the number 70 here is to show that he's representing the whole world. He's not listing the whole world. He's not listing every person, every nation, every geographical location. But what he's saying is my list represents the entire world at this point. So that it is from this list that this group, this this table of nations, all people on the earth, that the line of promise would emerge. There's no outlier. There's no secret tribe or anything like that that came. This is it. This is everyone. And you and I already know this is coming, that this is where the Redeemer is going to come from. But Moses is setting the reader up to understand that the sovereign administration of the covenant promise is going to be carried out and fulfilled. That it is from all nations that one would emerge. And God would take that one and make him into a nation. And that's where the rest of Genesis is going to go. That one is Abram, who would become Abraham, and he's going to make him into a nation. And then from that nation will come the Redeemer, who will redeem people from all nations. And that's what we see at the end of the story, that people from all nations, tribes, and tongues will be brought together. So do you see why this genealogy is important? He's showing us some things that if we just read through it, if we just worked our way through hard-to-pronounce names that we might miss some of these things. Genesis 10 is showing that there is one people, in a sense, united in that they all have this common origin, all people coming through Noah and his sons. And then in the middle of this genealogy, we're going to get this story of the Tower of Babel. We're going to see one people divided. 
where their language is confused and where they're scattered. And then after that, the genealogy picks back up in chapter 11 and focuses in on the line of Shem, which is going to take us to Abram, from which the nation of Israel would come. So that is what we're looking at from Abram, who becomes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that's where Genesis ends. And then Exodus picks up from when they were in Egypt. What's interesting, again, though, I mentioned this number 70, is that toward the end of Genesis, in chapter 46, just a few chapters from the end, there's another list of 70. It's the 70 sons of Jacob. And what, again, Moses is doing is not necessarily listing everybody, but he's showing that this is a complete representation, that all of Israel went to Egypt. They went to escape famine. And they all went there. And so from Israel would come one Redeemer, the Redeemer, one Redeemer for all peoples. And that's what we'll look at from that final part of the genealogy in chapter 11 in two more weeks. So is it just a list of a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce? No, there's so much more in here. And we're not going to go through every name that would not only take us too long, uh, it would... uh, it, it, it would be too, too much for us to deal with. But I want us to keep in mind the big picture, that is the story of God's redemption, that indeed the Redeemer would come. And, all, and he would come to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would be in opposition to him. And we see that throughout Scripture, that Satan, he knows the promise is sure because he knows God's word is true. And so Satan would do everything, working in every way that he could work to stop the Redeemer from coming. And we can think of all the ways that that, that, that happened, even in, in and through the birth and the story of Jesus. And yet we know that Jesus did come, and he accomplished all of his Father's will. So, beginning in verse 2 then, we see these two bookends in verse uh, 1 and verse 32 that announce and then remind what this genealogy is. Beginning in verse 2, we get the story of Japheth. Now, if you notice, we always have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's the order that it's given in Genesis, but, but once we get to this part of the genealogy, it's reversed, and Japheth comes first. The reason is is because we're moving toward Shem. Moses wants to kind of shine the light, put the focus on Shem. That's where the promise is coming. So it doesn't mean that the other two aren't insignificant. We're going to see there's some very important things that come from the other two, but the focus is going to be on Shem. We're going to get to the point where we see that indeed no one is left out. And that's part of the good news, that there's no one that's excluded because all of us are included in the other parts. So I don't think any, I mean, some of you may have that lineage, but very few of us probably do have any Jewish lineage that most of our lineage comes from Japheth or Ham. So we thank God that we haven't been left out. The majority of Japheth's descendants move toward what is known as Europe today to us. They moved north and to the west. A few did go to the east, toward Iran, toward India, but most went north and to the west. And it's referred to as the coastlands or the islands. And so you think of Turkey, you think of Greece, you think of Italy and Spain and that Mediterranean area. And of course, they would continue to move and be dispersed further up. Linguists have discovered what is called, and you may have heard this term, the Indo-European languages. Indo, representing India, European, you wouldn't think that those two were necessarily tied together, but this is one of those findings that linguists have found that there are common, uh, there's a common history among these languages. You listen to them today, and at least I couldn't hear anything that sounds common, but linguists who specialize in this find that there are 
there is a common history. Now, this genealogy is looking ahead, as I mentioned, toward the Tower of Babel, toward the scattering that is to come. We're going to get there. As a result, God confuses the languages, and he then scatters them. That's what's then happening here. So you have Gomer, Javan, Taraz. All of these guys went westward uh, with their families, uh, and from them come the Ionian Greeks. So we know those pieces of history. So the Greeks can trace their lineage back to these guys. Some would even make the argument for German lineage coming back this far as well. Uh, Elisha, different Elisha than, than most, what most of us think of with Elisha as the Bible, but this Elisha, spelled a little bit differently, uh, father of the Cretans. That's where he ended up, on the island of Crete. And if you know, in the New Testament, Cretans were kind of looked down upon as barbaric. Um, Kittim is mentioned. That's a city, not a, not a person. It may have been a person, we don't know, but from all we can tell, it was a city. It's, a, it's modern-day Larnaca in the nation of Cyprus. Uh, Kittim is one of the examples of a geographical location. Magog, you remember that name probably from any uh, Old Testament study. It's referred to Tubal as well, mentioned again in the Old Testament. And then Madai is the father of the Medes, and you probably remember the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So where did Madai end up? in modern-day Iran or Persia. So this idea that they, they spread out, most of them going to, the, the, to what is known uh, as Europe, so most of us could connect some of our heritage with Japheth in this line. And we remember that the blessing that Noah pronounced on Japheth was that he would be brought back into the tents of Shem. That was the promise. And we see that unfold in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, where this begins to happen. In uh, verse 6, we get to the line of Ham, and this is where the bulk of the genealogy focuses its attention. The curse would come through the line of Ham. It would land on his son, Canaan. But we have to remember, we talked about this last week, that doesn't mean that all of them are excluded from the grace of God. In fact, we talked about Rahab, right? She was a Canaanite woman. So here's a woman in the line of Ham Uh, a prostitute at that, and yet Hebrews 11 tells us that she was saved by faith. And so uh, we also think of Jonah, and Nineveh is mentioned here as well. God sent one of his guys, one of his prophets to Nineveh, uh, you know, a Gentile city, uh, to hear a, a, a message of faith and repentance. But what stands out more from the line of line of Ham? at least to me as I read through that, is all of Israel's future, the majority of their future enemies. That list, the the Amalekites, the Girgashites, the termites, all of those people in that list are the ones that we would eventually get to and see that Israel has to drive out, right? Uh, That they would be their future enemies. And as we begin to see then uh, uh, in in the next uh, book of the Bible in Exodus, Egypt would also become a great enemy. Joseph goes at the end of Genesis to, to, for, for, uh, for food. Uh, brings, he's already there, but he brings the rest of the, the, the family down because there's a famine in the land. And it worked well for a while until that generation died off and then Israel becomes slaves. Egypt would remain one of Israel's uh, most bitter enemies. And I think that's even true somewhat to today. Uh, if you've ever... Talked with people from either country, you know that there's a little bit of hostility even between them today. 
Then in the middle of this genealogy of Ham, we get this brief stiff, uh, snippet of a story about this guy named Nimrod. Nimrod, in verse 8, he's called a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I don't know if this, I have never thought of this before. And I don't remember anyone ever explaining this to me. If they did, I forgot it, which isn't saying much because I forget a lot. Nimrod, I remember being called a Nimrod as an insult. (laughs) And I'm not saying I ever called anybody a Nimrod, but that might have happened too. So I had to look this up. Where did this come from? You know where it came from? Bugs Bunny. (laughs) So the writer of Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes, had him, had... Bugs call Elmer Fudd a Nimrod because he was no mighty hunter. That's where that came from. So our you know, generations that have grown up on Looney Tunes hear this word as an insult. That's where they got it from. But the name of Nimrod, even though he was called a mighty hunter here, and it's a little confusing because it sounds like it's a compliment, but I don't think it is. I don't think that the description before the Lord is something that really works well in English. Because I see Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and I think that he submitted before the Lord, but I don't think that's what's here at all. Let me explain it. The name Nimrod actually means we shall rebel. That's our first insight into what kind of person Nimrod was. It was he was a man of rebellion. He was a man of tyrannical rule. He was a man who created a, what is called a kingdom, but we know from the history of these cities that it was a kingdom of... Um, uh, of fear and of violence. In this list of uh, cities is the city of Babel. We're going to see the Tower of Babel coming up next week. Babel would become a city by another name that sounds a lot like it. Babylon. This is, ba- this is the ancient Babylon. Babel is the ancient Babylon. So not only in the Old Testament is it kind of this image of evil and oppression, but even looking forward in eschatology... Babylon is associated with evil and oppression. So, um, you know, there, there's a number of things that, that cause, you know, my radar to kind of go off when I'm reading this to wonder what is really the story of Nimrod. And so I think what would better, uh, maybe a better way that this could be translated is that not as before the Lord in the sense of humbly before the Lord, but really that he's against, before the Lord against him that he's uh, opposed to the Lord, because none of his life, none of his history, none of his legacy is one uh, where he is humbly before the Lord and following in his ways. I think Moses worded it this way for two reasons. One, to show that he was opposed, which we get through his name and through his history and so forth. But also there's a a, uh, a little bit of a jab in it as well, because he was before the Lord. As a man, whether he acknowledged it or not, As a human being, he was under the sovereign rule of God, and nothing that he did would thwart God's plan. Finally, we get to Shem in verses 21 to 30, and as I mentioned before, this is we're going to expand this in coming weeks. Let me mention just a few things today. One, the very first thing that Moses draws our attention to is that he's the father of all the children of Eber, or Eber or Eber is Shem's descendant further down the line. He's at least a great-grandson. He may have been further down the line because a lot of times in these genealogies, generations would have been skipped to try and include everyone without listing everyone by name. But Eber's important for two reasons. One, he is where uh, the the line uh, splits 
uh, at the point of election. Now, his sons, Peleg and Joktan, are not as well known to us, but they follow in the same pattern as uh, Isaac and Ishmael or Jacob and Esau, where we see the Lord's sovereign election in this line. Peleg would carry the line of promise from where Abram would descend. He's his ancestor. The second reason Abram is important and mentioned here is that it is from his name that we get the word Hebrew. So he is the ancestor, the father of the Hebrews. So it's another reason to consider that. From Shem, only the line of Joktan here is mentioned because Peleg is going to be described later in chapter 11. And in Joktan's line, we see one of these kind of cul-de-sacs, genealogical cul-de-sacs. We really don't know very much at all about any of these names. The one that we do know something about would be Uz, if that is indeed uh, the, the, the person from who that city or nation or area, geographical uh, area was named after because that's where Job was from. Uh, but beyond that, we know uh, very little. These people uh, migrated toward the east, toward southern Arabia, uh, and then uh, that's where Joktan's people ended up. So Peleg now is going to become the focus. That's where the spotlight is going to continue to focus until we get to Abram, who would become Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, who would eventually be called Israel. Right. Yeah, that's the, that's the, the nation. So it is one people then who will descend all from these three sons of Noah. And we all have this common ancestry. This is our story. Uh, this, is, this is our history. Uh, from where all of us have come. There's no room then, because we have a common history, because we have a common ancestry, we have a common blood for racism or any kind of superiority among believers. Uh, This is something that is not only part, a sad part of our country's history, it's a part of every one of our hearts. You can put it in another name if you want, but any time we begin to group people in our own mind, in our own heart, and begin to look down upon them or judge them or dismiss them or think ill of them. And Folks, this is in all of our hearts. This is that sin that we need to come back and we need to remember who we are first as created in the image of God, that we are all created in the image of God. We've all been given that dignity and worth, but more so as believers that we have been saved by grace, that none of us stands in our own merit or on our own worth. So even if it wasn't enough genetically, even more so spiritually, we know that we are all beggars who are showing other beggars where to find food, and that's it. None of us has a leg to stand on. There's a day where judgment is coming. It is coming. Uh, Our brotherhood, our unity among mankind, there will be a separation as sheep from goats. This is the language that Jesus used. Those who are saved by the grace of Christ to everlasting life and those who have rejected Jesus to everlasting torment. And it is because of this coming judgment that we ought to be a people who are so concerned about our brothers and sisters, our fellow mankind, that we should be committed, urged, motivated, compelled to share the reason for the hope that we have. That if it weren't for someone else sharing that hope with us, how would we have heard? 
How does one hear without a messenger? How does one hear without a preacher? A preacher in, in the sense that we're all preachers, that we're all proclaimers. Not that I'm the only one with that job. We all have that job. We all ought to be compelled. That this hope that we have, the gospel, that is the fulfillment of the promise from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, that he has effectively carried it out and accomplished all that he planned to do, not only to crush the head of the serpent, but to crush sin and death in the process. Everything that stood between us and God, all of our sin, our fallenness, the things that we've done wrong, the things that we failed to do right, all of it has been paid for by Jesus. And so the hope that this genealogy brings us to is to Him, to a person. The person who has brought us this table. And that's what this table represents. This table represents the fulfillment of this genealogy. That what God said He would do, He did accomplish. Not only in crushing the the, the head of the serpent, but even the promise that He continues to give to Noah to be a man of comfort and rest, and then through His sons to to, to give the promise through Shem, but that then uh, the others would be brought in as well. That we are beneficiaries of those covenant promises. So this table then serves not only as a gospel call to those who have yet to believe. And if you've never put your trust in Christ, listen to what this table proclaims to you today. That sin has been nailed to the cross. But it's also a call for us. For us who do believe. To continue to walk in faith. Not only are we united in our humanity, we are united, and this is even more importantly, we are united in Christ. This is why we we call this communion for a number of reasons. We're not only communing with our Savior, but we're coming together as one body. We're communing together. There is no superiority in this table. There is no one that is is, uh, more loved by God or more saved by God or more of a recipient of grace, of the grace of God. We are all... Grace is the great equalizer. Grace brings us all on our faces, humbly before God, receiving what He freely offers. And so this is a call for us who are saved as well to to be nourished, to be fed, to continue to walk in faith, to turn away from sin, and to continue to trust in the One who took this table and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured and spilled out for you. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare ourselves now to come to this table, may we see the hope of the promise of the covenant carried out, not just through the genealogy that we looked at this morning, but through all of Scripture. There's this common thread that runs through all of the events, the Psalms, the the prophets, everything pointing all, coming down to this one result of that promise, the person of Jesus. We thank you for him, for his work on our behalf. I pray today that if there's anyone who does not know him, that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, for those of us who do profess our faith in you, may this be a day of strengthening that faith, that you would renew, that you would empower, and that you would give us great courage to live lives that are pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.